Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the jazz session is archived and available on demand at thejazzsession.com, and at least until Apple goes out of business, also at iTunes. That doesn't seem likely to happen anytime soon. Speaking of all about jazz,、uh, I recently wrote, and it's less recently by the time you're hearing me say this, but I very recently wrote a piece for AllAboutJazz.com, taking a look back at the year on the jazz session. And rather than doing some sort of top ten list of my own best performances, which seemed <laughs> yeah, a little cheeky, I decided instead to take a tour of some of the interesting places in which I'd recorded. Interviews during the year, every place from James Ship's minivan to the impressively small green room at the Jazz Standard,、uh, to the、uh, small but more potent green room full of the Respect Sextet at La Poisson Rouge in New York,、uh, to Steve Kuhn's kitchen and John Patitucci's dining room. And on and on. So anyway, if you go to、uh, All About Jazz, you can just type in Jason Crane in the search box, and it'll come up. You can also find a link to it at thejazzsession.com. You can click on the Jazz Writing category on the、uh, category links on the left side, and you will find it.、Um, on my most recent trip to New York to、uh, do the whole Christmas thing with、uh, with my family and my parents, I was lucky enough to get time to record a couple of interviews: one with、uh, Amy Servini, and another in exactly the same room with Marty Ehrlich, who's today's guest. Marty plays with everyone. Everyone plays with Marty, and、uh, he's, I think, just one of the more exciting players on the scene today. And this album、uh, that we're going to hear from today is called "Things Have Got to Change." It's from Marty's Wright's Quartet, which、uh, takes a look at both the music and kind of the the musical conception of Julius Hemphill,、uh, with whom、uh, Marty played also. And、uh, this album is one of those that I put in the CD player, and I didn't move again till it was over. The very first time I heard it, and I've listened to it a million times since. It's it's just stellar from start to finish. We're going to hear now the、uh, opening tune called "Rights Rhythms." <laughs> My guest is Marty Ehrlich.、Uh, Marty has been on a ton of CDs over the last、uh, couple of years. Incredibly busy, but、uh, the one、uh, that I particularly want to focus on today is with the Wrights Quartet called "Things Have Got to Change," which came out on Clean Feed. And、uh, first of all, thanks for being on the show. It's great to talk to you. My pleasure, Jason. This、uh, this is one of those records that when I, as soon as I put it on, from almost the very first few measures, I don't think I moved again until it was finished. It's just it's one of those records for me. That's a little. But、uh, makes me very happy. And I want to ask: Can you talk a little bit about first how it came to be? It seems like it came to be in kind of an unlikely way, just the recording itself. Well, yeah, I mean, it had its roots. 
directly in that I started doing this evening-length presentation called um, A Composer Portrait of Julius Hemphill, which is actually the name of a series at the Miller Theater in New York City at Columbia. So they approached me, would you do put together an evening of Julius Hemphill's music, which was a wonderful opportunity to look at the complete Hemphill. I had been, of course, playing with Julius for many years. I often did his songs in my own small groups, and I had continued doing his sextet as sort of musical director after he died in 1995. But this allowed us to do his two string quartets, a solo piano piece written for Ursula Oppens, saxophone ensemble music, and then I said, you know, the, the record that most people love of his is Dogon A.D., unfortunately still not commercially available for Which 30 is incredible. years. It's some yeah. weird blip of the universe. People now just bootleg it so people can hear it. But anyway, and that was a record that really sort of turned people's heads around. Um, and it included the cellist Abdul Wadud, who I then went on to play with over years. He was in my first emergency piece. We played together with Anthony Davis for years. So I put this together to at that concert to play that music. And then I said, you know, Julius had a lot of music for this instrumentation, so we got together and played some of that. And then I said, you know, it's time for me to write my own music for this instrumentation. So the band has been sort of in this evolution. Uh, the Wright's record is sort of a transition record. Um, the things have got to change. It's got five of my originals and three of Julius's. And so that's it's sort of its thing. I mean, it sort of continues... That, but I'd say also, it's what's sort of fun for me in particular is that for many years I've sort of had a group of mine called the Emergency Peace Ensemble, sure. which used cello and bass, often not with drums. And um, let's say, for lack of a better term, it was more in the chamber direction. And then I'd have groups usually with bass and drums, with, you know, quartets, thing I did for years with Stan Strickland, et cetera, et cetera. And the rights, the cello sort of moves between both. And um, it's been really fun. And also, I hadn't often used trumpet, except in, I'd started to with James Oller being on my sextet recording, News, uh, News on the Rail, and my big band recording, The Long View. So this, for me, gave me the opportunity to pull a number of passions together. And, uh, and so that's what it is. Uh, we did a concert last month, again, at the Miller Theater, this time just Marty Ehrlich's Wright's Quartet, and I've written uh, a number of new pieces for it. I'm pretty close to uh, having a second record of original stuff ready. So oh, that's really exciting. It feels like a very sort of rich thing, and I think a lot of it is that with the cello, um, and particularly with cello and alto, because, you know, register... Uh, the range of an instrument, whether it's high or low, for which I think everyone can understand the difference between a soprano voice or a bass voice, the cello um, really can move. You sort of have a horn choir, like you can write for three voices with it playing the bow, and then you can use it also as bass function, but even more to the point as guitar function. And uh, that's something Eric Friedlander in particular is into, and surely... Um, most all cellists who are improvisers these days exploit. And it is really worth pointing out, this was really one of the things that Abdul Wadud brought to the fore. I mean, it was, I think he saw it very much as an instrument with a 
European lineage and an African lineage um, and Asian lineage. And you know, just that all these sort of strummed traditions go along with the strum and picked traditions go along with the uh, Arco tradition. so interesting because changing just that one instrument, moving from bass to cello, yes. allows the music to go in so many directions, even in the course of, of one record, or I assume one Oh, yeah, very much it's, so. It's really and, and I try to avoid making it... Well, I, you know, at the times it has what we think of as the bass function, as in, you know, walking, sort of a 4-4 four, four walk, you know. But, um, yeah, it's a different sort of sound. You're certainly uh, many years removed now from the St. Louis scene, but it seems like that at least some character of that and the black artist group and mm. the people who came out of that has remained with you Well, I mean, keep forever. one thing in mind that um, the St. Louis scene ended many years ago and the St. Louis scene's been in New York for over 30, sure. 35 years. Um, Oliver Lake, Bakita Carroll, J.D. Parr, these are all very good friends of mine. We still play together. I, they play with me. I play with them um, and others. So, I mean, though it's you know, somewhat dispersed and sadly we've lost... You know some of the greats, but um, yeah, it's it's a um, it's alive uh, and it's broadened. So yeah. Was there a, a particular kind of compositional character to it, or something about the way people work together that made it so? Well, I would say cohesive? definitely for one thing, definitely the second. I mean, a lot of what I mean at that time, everybody was looking at the role that collective improvising could play to push the music forward. Mm. It wasn't that they didn't use, let's say, traditional song form, because different players from St. Louis did. They perhaps were a bit more amenable to that, some of that than the, the more sort of reconstructivist guys from Chicago, who they were all very close with. But more to the point is that, um, you know, I think two things that defined... It surely defined the new jazz of the 60s. And the, and, the, and the black artist group in the ACM, you can sort of look at it as sort of a second generation of it with a little overlap, is, um, for one thing, the role of the instruments 
Collective improvisation became very important, and the roles, instruments were sort of freed from their traditional hierarchies. Surely the drums were. Though, to be a bit of a historian here, uh, we want to give credit that the innovation of a Milford Graves, let's say, um, as sort of strikingly radical it sounds when you listen to those early records, you know, surely had its roots in, in what the ways that Elvin Jones and Art Blakey and Max Roach pushed the role of the drums. Having said all that, those instruments were freed up to not just be supportive. And then, I would say for me, when I first began to meet these players and play with them, the majority of what we did was collective playing. And that's still to this day a very strong thing. And, you know, it's one thing, and that had a aesthetic component. It had a political component. It was about a sense of collective action. Um, I think it had a spiritual component. Uh, and to this day, it, you find a lot of players who don't have much of a sense. I mean, in many ways, jazz is still about the hot solo, what I call the heroic solo. Um with the burning rhythm section. And, you know, I don't know. I, I think it, it, that should never disappear, by the way. But I think the music has broadened. And um, my background a lot was in from those early days. How can, you, how can you hear the entire piece happening? How can you contribute? Is the uh, the political and spiritual component, is that, like, for example, when I think of, like, picture your album covers, I can see, like, the, the kind of uh, Japanese calligraphic uh, oh, I did cover of one, yes. one right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and even uh, titles like Things Have Got to Change, I mean, there's, there still seems to be some of that carrying through well, whatever spin you put on the particular meaning of that phrase. Sure. About to change. Yeah, I mean, even this title, I, I took just because it seems to sort of jolt me when I mm. say it. Um, you obviously can interpret it a lot of ways. We're in, we're in a strong era of interpersonal change. You have to change yourself. Uh, how instrumental music without topical lyrics functions politically will always be a question of debate. Mm. And at best is surely something that can only be talked about within a uh, historical moment, you know. Uh, so having said that, sure. I'm not making a claim. The title is not meant to make a claim for this music. Um, as much as that I do believe that there is something that happens in music where I'm, I'm excited when I feel that when I'm playing with people, I do something that doesn't feel like something I've done before and at the same time feels really exciting. And if I hope that if I can get to that spot, that I hope is one of both creativity and of ex sort of um, expressivity, that that will communicate to the audience. Is that desire to do things you haven't done before what pushes you into so many different ensemble groupings? It, for I like different groupings. And, and my interpretation of this, uh, I think, is, well, it might, it's not different than some people. But I don't, I have a sense that I, I consider myself a pan-stylistic player who doesn't believe in musical style. This is my current little thing. I, it's Actually, I wrote a, have an essay in the new Arcana, that mm. collection of essays that John Zorn edits, mm. which is, I sort of argue this, in that I, um, I like using the whole history of jazz and the whole history of black music and the whole history of Jewish music and the whole history of 
Brazilian music or what, you know, I'm saying whatever I can grab um, if, if I feel I can pull it off or at least access it in a, in a proper way. Um, so, because I like a, and, I, and to me, and that's why I like players, I, I don't like, there's a certain jazz style that jazzes up everything and I tend to think of a set of music, a CD, an evening's concert as a long as a novel or a long short story. And the idea is that these pieces are there to contrast each other on down the line. And so, and for that I try to use a lot of different, from more very traditional languages to perhaps not as traditional languages, from very traditional forms to not as traditional forms. You know, though in this day and age there's not that much new under the sun. Having said all that, that works for me. That seems to keep me engaged and charged doesn't work for everybody. Um, I think at a certain point for the quote-unquote avant-gardist, it was hard for them to, to access certain historical styles without feeling that they would then be trapped in some ways, or sometimes they did it sort of ironically. You know, uh, certain Roscoe Mitchell tunes, for example, have a certain <laughs> tongue-in-cheek. Though, Lord knows, Roscoe is one of the great composers of melodies. Some of those short tunes of his sure. are not tongue-in-cheek. Uh, tune like, let's say, Oduala. It's a sort of perfect piece of a, of a minor melody. Um, so having said all that, I, that's how I work. And I consider it, and why I say who doesn't believe in style is that I don't believe in segregating these styles. So though I do different groups, they are the challenge of instrumentation, the challenge of different artists playing them. And, that, and they're really, they are compositional aesthetic challenges. But I probably bring to all these groups a certain similarity. And I have taken a composition that I wrote for the emergency piece and done it in my Traveler's Tale group and vice versa, just to see where it goes. So, uh, I, so I get the pan stylistic uh, aspect, and so if, if we take it back to, for example, this record, things have got to change. Sure. There are certainly um, 
I don't know if they're stylistic conventions, but they're, they're compositional concepts that emerged out of what Julius Hemphill did with the same or similar instrumentation well, Julius, that yes. are Go certainly ahead. informing the compositions on this sure. record. Right? And Julius was a pan stylist. Sure. He very much <laughs> did. I always feel, I mean, this is what I feel I really, what really drew me to Julius's music. And that was the challenge as, from an early age, I was fortunate to get hired by him to play with him that when you played in his ensembles, he assumed you would be able to handle pretty much a combination of what I call the entire... It was almost like he was trying to write the history of American music to some extent. He would use a country tune. He'd use a myriad of African-American music styles, jazz only being one of them, right? And then he would write pieces that I called Hemphilian that were pretty much like in an open, chromatic, openly rhythmic space. You you sort of hear them as his. What's cool about them is they aren't easily broken down into a system when you analyze them technically. So, I mean, he was also like at times he wanted to hear something maybe he hadn't heard before. And I, 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 for me, I think that puts the finger. It's not that I'm sort of trying to imitate what he does. I feel in my own way close to what that means psychologically to be psychological because I really think it is to some extent it's that there is a give and take between this sense of this historical sound brings up some connection that galvanizes me and at the same time it cannot fully express everything so but I'm not jettisoning it. It's, it's not yet dead for me. I can still look at it. Right? I don't believe in this straight line march of history. You know, which a lot comes more, I will say, from to use the term George Lewis has really made clear, the Eurocentric. I mean, this was the big fight in European music to some extent. Uh, it sort of got blown apart in the 20th century, though certain people, Aboulez in particular, let's say, really fought for it. This is now old and must be left in the past. Right. Um, and then conversely, the other side was like, well, if you do some of that, then you're, you're now a charlatan towards, you, oh, why, why did... Bernstein hated the fact that, uh, that um, Stravinsky wrote 12-tone music at the end of his life. and hated it, but he lamented it, you know, and I think he was wrong. You know, those are some pretty cool pieces of music. Makes sense. Actually, they sound... What's fascinating about them is they sound exactly like Igor Stravinsky pieces. My point being that I don't see things in a long line, but I think all the stuff exists. And actually, the majority, I think, of, of, of artists are seeing things this way. But one more thing and I'll stop. I sure. think what separates the quote-unquote new jazz guys or from, from the jazzers, so to speak, is that the jazzers do hold on to this thing that everything has to be, the soloist has to be the virtuosic solo. And unfortunately, we're in an age of great virtuosity because of our education systems, because of the access of what you have. I mean, players play the living you-know-what out of their horns these days. And to me, it can almost get in the way. You know, Archie Shep once said one time that Bird had taken chord changes as far as they could be taken. And at his, you know, we could disagree with that. 
it's probably it's it's what when you call those points in an argument, they're sort of like rhetorical, right? You know, and look, and Archie at a certain point became sort of a neoclassical guy who spent this was still is playing song form. Sure, um, he's in many ways a traditionalist, and he said that when he was quite young and was trying to figure out a different way, and. I think there's a certain truth to that, but I don't think it turned out to be the the forms as much as I'd like to see. I hear the whole group when I'm listening, mm-hmm. and it's pretty rare these days that virtuosity in and of itself is going to get me that excited. Um, and I think when we hear the classic virtuosos who also have that spark, uh, our, our favorite Rollins solos, uh, as virtuosic as they are, and uh, it isn't what we hear, you know. By the way, I'm a big fan of his, I, I like to defend his music of the last number of years against those who stop listening after 1950. 63. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of his later music too. <laughs> I mean, I'll I'll take any of those types of the, the passion and at times rhythmic invention in what he's doing up to today is I'll take that any day of the week. you talk about this how do listeners kind of navigate through this pan stylistic environment when they're yeah. not sure what's like what's tongue-in-cheek what's supposed to be cool what are they what things are acceptable in a tune i, I, I think that's a very good point i think that's a very good point um because what i am talking about is a bit more compositional isn't quite the word the problem that word it makes people think of again in in the eurocentric sure the virtuoso composer played by the virtuoso performer. And we're talking about something else. We're talking about that, you know, and really Ornette gets a ton of credit for this, more than almost, you know, he basically said, I don't, I'm going to make my own context. I don't have to prove anything. The proof is in what I do. So we are asking the listener, and it's a, it's a conundrum in this age of, of a huge amount of information out there. It's, it is a bit time-consuming. I'm asking the listener to say, can you give this record... I don't know if one... I can't tell you that Things That Gotta Change has one type of tune you're going to like. You know, even within the more standard, you know, up-tempo blues and then a ballad of the sort of, let's say, what became a bit of the hard bop session type thing. Um, so I'm asking you to give it, to give it an hour. So I think it is hard. I think that's why labeling has been helpful, but also hurtful. Hmm. Yeah. What do, what do you mean by labeling? In well, sense? that'll always be an issue in the music. Uh, I just read the wonderful new biography of Thelonious Monk by yeah. R.J. Kelly. Um, it's, it's definitely one of the, I mean, he's a great historian. It's a really deeply researched, very thoughtful book. And Monk was an example. I mean, I mean, he always was Monk. You know, he was sort of a one-man academy, and uh, he both benefited from being lumped with, quote-unquote, bebop, 
he had his own issues. A lot of artists can be a little prickly about this. He wasn't alone in that. But, and look, eventually the world caught up to him. Sadly, not always to make his life, he, he, you know, the book hits you with that. He struggled a lot, a lot, you know, until sort of near the end. But anyway, I bring that up because I think labels help at a certain point. There are movements, and they help people connect to the movements. And then at a certain point, we then start to separate the individuals. And you see this in any art form. Let's put it this way. You know, when you look at the quote, the new jazz of the 60s, and pretty much it's, you know, Ornette, Cecil, and Coltrane are looked at sort of the three icons, maybe with Sun Ra thrown in there. And those guys are as different as the day is long, really, though they shared some larger things. So it's this back and forth thing. mentioned uh, two of them in passing, but will you mention the members of the Wrights Quartet and uh, how yeah, they came into me, this picture? Okay. Yeah. Oh, sure. Well, um, I mean, one thing I'm really enjoying now, I mean, I'm, I'm 54. I got to New York and when I was 21 or 22. I made my first record with the Human Arts Ensemble when I was 17. So I've pretty much been doing this a long time um, and hopefully many more years to go. But uh, it's sort of nice that Though the sustaining of a group like we like we celebrate so much historically has long been problematic. There's you know the infrastructure that supported working with one band all the time ended many many years ago. But I've had long musical relationships with a lot of musicians, and for you know for example in this group Faron Akhlaf on drums, uh, and I think I first played with him in the mid-1970s, when he was, we're about the same age, he had, I was in music school, and I think he had, uh, Leo Smith brought him up to do a gig in Boston, uh, and I remember seeing him with uh, Anthony Davis and Oliver Lake and Leo, and then we began to do gigs together, and so I've, known, you know, done things here and there with him on my projects, since I've been together for 35 years, and Eric probably for 25 years, so, you know. Boy, every, also, everyone's very busy. Everyone's doing a dozen groups. People are trying to get their own. We're all doing this scuffle-shuffle thing. And so, you know, I'm always glad when I can get people. <laughs> 
I'm even a little like, even saying like who's in the band. I mean, I'm also like, you know, I'm, I'm always going to have a good band, but I do my best. I like this band has an identity, and with James on trumpet, and uh, I'm working towards getting more work for it. Is it necessary for uh, – I'm always curious about whether all of the members of a particular group have to share a, a philosophy to the way they approach the music in order for it to work. Well, I, I, I'll, you know, that's a good question, and I, I, I'm going to answer a little bit like a teacher, which I am now, because um, <laughs> my students often say, man, you worked with all these groups. I mean, I what, blah, blah, blah. I said, what I try to advise them is – Part of the art of being a good side man, side person, is that, in a sense, you should be critical of what's going on, but you make your first priority entering the world of the leader composer. Mm. Not every, you know, if you really can't do that, you probably should just do your own band, you know. And, you know, certain people obviously get to the point early on where that's it. You know, uh, um, we don't have everyone's making their list. Who's ever listened to this right now? They're mine. But for me, and, I, and I'll, you know, I'll tell you a little a developmental thing. So you know, I moved to New York, and I start working with a lot of mostly the older, the generation that I'd heard growing up. I meet a lot of the Chicago guys. I tour with Braxton. I do some gigs with Leroy Jenkins, Muhal, Julius Hemphill, Oliver. I've worked with Chico Hamilton. Uh, things start to happen. George Russell does his big band. He had been my teacher. So I'm often the youngest or young, the part of the young crew playing with this next generation, and I guess the case of George, two generations. Um, and, and this was immensely exciting. And uh, I really felt part of this new thing happening. It's why I'd come to New York. And, um, you know, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, doing a few of my own gigs. And at a certain point, I find myself starting to think, you know, I wouldn't do it this way. And I said, aha, better start trying to figure, if that's what you're feeling. I, so I then began to challenge myself more to try to get my own gigs. And that began to happen. And at a certain point, I have got to where uh, I was really able, they, they are two very different challenges. And... Uh, for me, it works to do both. And I love being a sideman now. I love it. I, to me, I just, I, it, it's very relaxing. I mean, obviously, one thing is the sideman has many less worries about the business, the this, the that. Are we going to get paid? Is the, this going to happen? Blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think it's, um, so my advice is like, if you can, you can't stop yourself from having an opinion and stuff, but really try to put yourself, make their music work. Mm. And, uh, and I think maybe that's its own art form. You know, the point being, though, is that we're not looking at, like, the classical model of, like, I'm going to tell you exactly, the notation tells you what to do, the historical style tells you what to do, and don't you dare budge for it, which is sort of a little bit what, becoming a very top-level, let's say, orchestral player can at least feel like a bit, depending on the conductor. 
Um, hopefully you're in a situation where, I mean, I want players who play with me, I want them to enter my, the space of the composition to get a sense where I'm going with the whole evening thing or the whole yeah. CD. And then I want them to surprise me. And that's that nice balance and dance. And that's what's great about, for example, players like Eric and Farone and James. They're, they're all great at that. Yeah, I was going to ask because there seemed to be a little bit of tension in what you were describing about entering the composer's world or the band leader's world. Yeah. A little tension of that and the kind of AACM bag collective improvisation thing. Well, and maybe there isn't tension. Well, maybe let me explain it. Um, a lot of what I did in those early years, a lot with the bad guys, was collective improv. And I mean, I'll tell a, a recent story. Uh, I was talking with Lou Hall, who was recently, he, he did the Chicago Jazz Festival. So he did his group. A lot of players turned out were in town who did their own groups, did their music. Surely with Sidemen who pulled off their music as they conceived it. And then they all met later on down at the Velvet Lounge at Fred Anderson's. And as opposed to your, let's say, the more historical swing era bebop jam session, because uh, I also talked to Oliver Lake, who was there, he said, we got on stage and did a two-hour collective improvisation where people came in, came out, the music never stopped. Now, and it's my guess, I wasn't there, that it was pretty damn interesting for that two hours, okay? Because these are really experienced players who are listening to the whole thing, who are going to come to the foreground and then come to the background so there's room for someone else in the foreground, who are going to break into duos, trios, quartets. Nobody has to, like, be a traffic cop up front. It sounded wonderful, and, and both of them described it to me like, oh, it was just such fun. But that wasn't the only thing they do. Sure. And so surely, yeah, uh, it's this balance between things. Um, I tend to bring to traditional song forms, I like approaching them with a little more of a collective angle. Uh, a few, uh, it's probably months ago now, actually, Myra Melford was on the show, and um, uh -huh. you and she seem to have a particularly yeah. full musical relationship. we're buddies. Yeah, can you talk about Myra and what makes you guys a good uh, She does exactly what I ask her to do on the piano. No, <laughs> yes, that's right. Plays she, every note exactly as written on the page. She'd be laughing if she was here. She's used to my uh, smart-ass comments. No, I mean, I think it was sort of a natural, because, I mean, I'd known Myra for years, mm. and... Uh, and I heard her when she first came to New York, and um, and then we began to play some. And uh, she hired me to do a quintet of hers, which I did a couple tours with. And then, then we didn't work together for a handful of years. And it was, I think it was my idea 
I said, you know, Myra, why don't we try to do a duo? Because it seemed like we, when we play duo, we really have a thing. This seems like a good thing to do. Duos are good, you know, separate from, because I've now realized I've made something like six or seven duo records. Mm-hmm. Duos are, are, they're a very good thing business-wise. I mean, you know, they're a good thing to have in your quiver of groups you can present to a presenter. Also, musically, I'm, there's something I'm really attuned to partly for this collective thing. And with Myra, uh, it's been, though um, we worked hard at it, um, it isn't, I don't want to describe it as some, um, not as some, oh, it was just, you know, the musical love at first sight and the swelling sw- strings came in like <laughs> in Hollywood. We'd rehearse and we probably ended up not doing about as many compositions, let's say, as we did. Not everything we'd write would work for each other. Mm. I've been in a good number of collective groups, and often this is a struggle in collective groups, is how do you find a common writing vocabulary? But with Myra, I really felt like we we knew, it's interesting, because we don't do much open improvising together. Uh, I think we're more interested in is that we're both really good at playing each other's, when we get the right piece for each other, we really play them well. She plays my stuff wonderfully. I feel like I bring a good thing to hers. And so we've been able to fashion a collective performance thing that I feel really good, that I feel, you know, the duo, especially with the horn, has its model on the classical, on the sense of like, you know, a violinist who tours with a pianist, let's say. Um, We've gotten tremendous response to this quartet. We've made the two records. And uh, we're planning, we're talking about the future. Um, possibly even adding a third. We're sort of intrigued to add a third non-normal, something different as a third person for maybe to try something different. Hmm. So, yeah, so with her, I think it was, again, shared intention, but uh, also that we both recognize that both of us are have, you know, at this point a strong musical direction and we're going to jump in there together and sort of kick it about. I'm interested in that comment about there are some, you know, in a collective improvisation situation, there are things that don't work uh, for everyone. So are you, do you tend to find yourself, depending on the people who are around you, using particular tools in your musical toolbox and not, not other well, situations? Well, yeah, I, I think there's, well, let me, let me back up a second and say this. The funny thing is you would think, even in that narrative I talked about starting as a sideman, then becoming a leader, and now, you know, finding a balance... Um, that becoming a leader means that you do exactly what you want. Mm. But I don't think that's what we see when we look at the great leaders. A Miles, who was surely one of the greatest leaders ever, both in his non, both I think at times when he really said something and times when he didn't say something. The stories you hear about Ellington. Um, and yet they, their music had their stamp to it. But... What I would say is there's a time when you're a leader where your main struggle is to be sure everyone else sounds good. Mm. If you make them sound good, you're going to sound good. Miles, again, sure there was a great example. He got his rhythm sections to play so amazingly. These were amazing musicians. But when you, they didn't always play the same way on other people's context that they played with him, let's say. Sure. So that's part of the struggle with being a leader. And, and I've worked... It's taken me a lot of years. I'm sure every musician who might be hearing this will concur with this. When do you say something and when do you not say something? Hmm. Say too much, you become sort of like, look, you know, can you just, they're like, can you give us a chance to like get into this a little bit? 
Um, sometimes you say nothing. You know, it's a balance. So it, it's a tricky thing. It's a little trial and error. And especially, and then there is certain technical things. People have certain proclivities. Hmm. Here, here's another thing. Younger drummers who are used to our sort of postmodern pan jumping around thing tend to be better. If you want to write a music that jumps from style to style to style quickly, I'm not even talking about necessarily a, a Zorn jump cut thing or type thing. Um, they're probably going to be better than that than an older drummer who's a little more used to the fact that you let the music start in a mode and settle in. Hmm. Yeah, you have to find a music that works. And sometimes not having a music, that's the advantage of open improvisation, which, of course, we have a huge international community doing. It's the advantage of what was great about you know, the, the level of what we call, sort of, let's say, the bebop, the swing bebop conventions, let's say, where... You know, if you got these guys get together, they just have to call a tune. It's going to be instant. Mm. You know, uh, I'm sure I didn't hear the Lee Konitz, Charlie Hayden Paul motion, uh, um, pianist, uh, the young pianist. You know, uh, Ethan was it? No, it wasn't Ethan. It's um, uh, I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm not going to. You know who it is. He's yeah. <laughs> he's very successful. But I mean, they supposedly did what Lee likes to do, which is mm. you don't even call the tune. You know, but these are all master players who know the material and they jump right in it. Sure. Uh, that's a cool thing. And I still like playing standards, you know, like that. Uh, Lee has surely had a long career of standing up for what that's about. Mm. Lester Bowie put it as well as anybody. Lester tended to put a lot of things as well as anybody. <laughs> he was both a provocateur and, a, you know, extremely insightful in what he said, I, I always found. Um, I, I saw an interview with him, and, uh, and he talked about how with the Art Ensemble, surely one of the great groups of collective improvisation and of surprise, the sound of surprise, he said... We had some really bad nights. We said we had to have those bad nights to have the really great nights we had. And I think 
that, that's a wonderful thing. We know what he means. They had to, like, push it at times, and sometimes it would fall apart. What that raises, and that we know is different than, like, the demands of a product. That there are spaces where failure, and, and, and let's, let's keep something in mind. What he was calling failure, we might not even have heard as failure. Sure. And we're not talking about, like, uh, you know, the drummer couldn't play for, for you know, whatever. Right. You know. But surely that wasn't something, if you're playing with Ella or Sinatra or something, uh, there wasn't room for that. You know, right. people that just paid their money, they want to hear a little of that. Hey, you know, we hear this about Coltrane, that uh, he had a hit with My Favorite Things. But by the time My Favorite Things came out, he was up to Crescent and a Love Supreme. Right. And about, then Love Supreme comes out and he's up to Meditations. <laughs> so, I mean, you know... People, I mean, that guy was on a was speeding ahead so quickly that by the time people had accepted something of his, he was already in another well universe. Sometimes, sure. <laughs> so uh, this is an this is the tension between that particularly jazz that I think, in particular, the African American artist has had to deal with for a couple hundred years. This issue between it being. And art music were quote-unquote failure. John Cage could fail a whole lot. I love John Cage. I've gone to a lot of John Cage concerts. Not all of those pieces, I mean, they're about failure, some of them, sure. which might be what's beautiful about them. But that was a safe, he had the space to do that. Some people walked out, blah, blah, blah. But uh, the Village Vanguard might not be that space. So this was always, this has been a struggle. And, and I don't think that's so much about one musical language. See, that's, that's what I'm going to argue, that um, I really respect how people find their individuality and their sense of community and stuff in for putting these approaches together. The problem with language to me is how quickly it gets picked up. I mean, language, I mean, people learn language in seconds. <laughs> it's how to use the syntax of the language. It's a hell of a lot harder. And, and we struggle with that. I mean, that's why we want to make a space that someone, let's say, who's all about the deep, let's say a great blues player, blues guitarist. I mean, you know, that's what they do. And it's actually really hard to do that night after night. And if, if, especially if they're able to get it across in a non-stylized way. Uh, versus, you know, as in like, oh, this is a show. Um, versus that there's that versus someone who's supposedly always doing something new, which usually falls apart when you look at it too closely. Creativity something else, I think. And what's amazing is when we look at the players who have really kept that going. And that's why I defend Sonny Rollins against those who think <laughs> that he didn't make a good record since Wilbur Ware and Pete LaRocca at the Vanguard. <laughs> I love these recent... I mean, he, I'm that sorry, man. I'll take it. One of, if I can pull off one of those solos before I move on to the great beyond, I'm a happy man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great way to, to bring it to a close. My guest is Marty Ehrlich. Uh, <laughs> his most recent record is uh, Things Have Got to Change with the Rice Quartet. And uh, I, like I said, I love this record and I love the way you preceded it. And I, you know, I want to say, I mean, I think some of this record is a lot of fun. I went for Me some... Too. I really, you know, I wanted... I like, there's some nice grooves on this record. Mm. And then there's some also real introspective sides to introspective or even just sort of sad. You know, I mean, I want the whole gamut. And I thought we grabbed it pretty good on this record. It was, uh, 
as I say in the liner notes, um, we did it in one night on our way back to America. And it had that, it has sort of that like, you know, guys, we don't got a whole lot of time to get all, you know, that's the other side of sometimes where necessity is the mother of invention. We sure. didn't have time to get too picky and, you know, you miss that eighth note and you miss that eighth note. And it's like, you better just get to the point, you know. Well, it's, uh, it's a fantastic <laughs> record and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for being Thank on the you, show. Jason. Appreciate it. That's Marty Ehrlich and his Wrights Quartet from the album Things Have Got to Change on Clean Feed Records. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is archived and on demand for free anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. And Steve Jobs, please don't cut off my iTunes feed because of the joke I made about Apple. Thank you. Speaking of people who might cut off my iTunes feed, thank you to the Respect Sextet. I don't even know what that means. Uh, RespectSextet.com is their web address, and they're playing all over the place these days. See if they're coming anywhere near where you live at RespectSextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo, and who, as it turns out, is allergic to cats. Ask his brother. That's it, kids. That's the show. Thank you so much for coming by and listening. Please go out there, and I say this you know, kind of uh, in a rote way at the end of every show, but it's almost the most important thing that happens on the show is me saying to you, go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. I'm serious. Do it. Do it right now. Put, 
take this in your iPod, plug it into the car, and finish listening to me say this as you drive to a jazz club. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye.